Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be starting in verse 14 after a three-month hiatus away from the book. This is the Word of God. It was written a long time ago, but because of the infinite wisdom of the author was written with you in mind because God is very wise. For it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked, slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, would you please give life and light to our minds and our hearts as we interact with your holy word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. How do you get someone to do a good job? How how do you get them to do what you want them to do? 
And this is a question that gets asked all of the time. Uh, it's in certainly many different forms. Some of us, it's how do we get our children to behave? Others, it's how do we get our employees to work the way that we want them to work? But it really gets at this kind of question of function. How, how do we get people to do what we want them to do? And certainly, I, I love thinking about this kind of, again, from a sports perspective. I follow European soccer and love watching it, the various ways that coaches interact with their various players. And do you scream at them when they mess up, or do you encourage them? Yeah, I tried hard. Well done. Right? Do you love on them? Do you rage against them? Are you the constant source of encouragement, the, the whisper in their ear that they always do a good job, or at least they're trying hard? The team I follow, the coach, famous for giving hugs when players do well. Is that a, a good tactic or not? How do we get people to do what we want? Now, that sort of question is, is kind of really a complicated answer for us because we don't really have the ability to actually force most people to do things. Now, that's not true for God. He could speak the word of his power and turn us all into robots and we would do exactly what he wished. But interestingly, as part of his design of people, part of the way that he's chosen to make us in his image, he's given us this will thing where we think and make decisions, most of them bad. And so I love looking at the scriptures, not just from the perspective of what they teach me and how I'm supposed to live, those are important things, but I love looking at them from the perspective of what does it show us about who God is? Namely, his specific character. Now, this is a passage that I think many of us have probably read a bunch of times. We know it well. We may have heard it preached a bunch of times. And uh, certainly, uh, the primary focus is often on go use your gifts. And that's right, you should. But that's not going to be our focus today. The focus of what we're going to look at is really what does this show us about God's heart. How do you look at the parable of the talents and see what it shows us about the heart of God? The first thing that I'd like for us to consider of this parable uh, is that it's framing out all of creation in general, but more specifically, every interaction between God and his creatures is built upon the foundation of God's generosity and mercy. You see, Jesus is in chapter 25 of Matthew teaching about kind of really the end of your life, the end of creation, the end of time. He's talking about the end, not the beginning. Verses 1 through 13 have, uh, I'm sure you remember from many months ago, but uh, been used with kind of great... Um, emotional pressure to think about the fact that, look, you have to be ready to die. Not going to lie, there, there's a real severe irony in preaching that sermon right before you go into the hospital for a month like I did, right? It's one thing to be able to say up here, hey, uh, content of the Bible says you got to be ready to die, and then it's something very different to be ready to die. This parable is a continuation of that same idea of you don't know when time ends, you don't know when your time ends, you don't know when your number will be called. But you have to live in light of it. 
You don't know when it's your time to go to the hospital. You don't know when it's your time for that car accident. You have to be ready. And for many of us, I guess, thinking through this from just a generic idea, that that's pro- produces a tremendous sense of fear, it could. A tremendous sense of unease. Well, I'm just not ready to go yet. I, I don't know what's on the other side. I, I don't know what life will be like there. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And it's interesting that really from the foundation of all of creation, but specifically God's interactions with his people, it is always out of generosity and love. This is a part of this parable that often gets overlooked. It's like a man going on a journey who calls his, and uh, honestly, the English chooses a specific word here, uh, namely because we're trying to get rid of a a very specific set of emotional baggage, Uh, but the word is slaves. It's not talking about the chattel slavery that we've had in this nation before, uh, but it is very much slaves that he's calling to himself. There's a reason why that's so important is because they are already his property. In fact, interestingly, there's nothing involved in this entire parable that does not already belong to him. He owns it all. So he calls his slaves to himself and says, I'm going to be going away for a time. I want you to manage my property. Now, for many of us, this, again, we think of it like, oh, he's giving them a job. How awful that as he goes away, he makes them work. But we forget that part of what he's doing here is he's also investing them with a way to live and survive and income and riches and ability. He's giving them a a massive amount of wealth that did not belong to them before to be used for his benefit, but interestingly, also for theirs. To the one, he gave five talents. That is roughly, as best guess, roughly, and depending on the, the numbers and things kind of change, but more or less the average wages of a worker for about 100 years. So we're not talking about a small amount of money. Roughly a hundred years worth of wages. To another one, he gives roughly 40 years, another roughly 20 years, and then he leaves. And it's an intriguing thing to think about that he's giving them that much wealth. And then they are to go and to take care of it. And we immediately think, oh, well, they just stick it in the stock market. Remember, their wealth wasn't kind of imaginary like most of ours is. Most of their wealth was concrete, it was tangible, it was in front of them, it was existing in things like grain and grapes, it existed in precious metals and things like that. What they're doing is they would have conducted this kind of process of increasing their income and growing would have benefited them immensely along the way. It's how they would have survived, it's what they would have eaten off of. It's intriguing that, again, we, we so often forget when we begin looking at this parable that... The owner of this is being ludicrously generous with the people that he's interacting with. To take slaves that were already his property, to give them massive amounts of money that would benefit them along the way to be used for his good. 
And I would say it's important that we remember kind of any conversation moving forward from this in light of our own circumstances as well. It's important that we have fixed in the back of our minds and in the front of our minds that the Lord loves his people. When did God start loving you? There's two answers that are most likely kind of jumping to your brain. One of them is really right, and one of them is really wrong. Some of us were like, well, Jesus, God started loving me when Jesus died on the cross. Friends, that's a terribly wrong answer. Tragically wrong answer. Jesus went to the cross because God already loved you. In fact, the reality is, is when did God start loving you? He started loving you before time even existed. The fancy term is is the covenant of redemption. It's when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Godhead, together agree to create, to ordain the fall, to redeem for himself a person, a people, and to accomplish that salvation. God has loved you prior to, to the creation of creation itself. In fact, actually, we can go so far as to think that, that matter even exists because God loves for himself a people. That Jesus stepped inside, second person of the Trinity stepped inside time and space into uh, humanity, into the womb of a virgin because God loves for himself a people. He went to the cross because God loves for himself a people. Every aspect of our existence is because God loves for himself a people. And in fact, that's kind of in the generic, but then even into more of the specific, every aspect of your existence is because God loves you. We touched on this a little bit last week, but there's no part of your experience that kind of falls outside the realm of God's love. The hard things that you experience are because God loves you. This passage here, Jesus then goes on with a parable to kind of emphasize a conversation on gifts. These gifts that God gives are out of his generosity, and that is certainly true. We actually see that in the context of their passage, uh, this passage, these gifts that are given are undeserved but freely given. The master gives these to the uh, servants, to the slaves. They're to be used, but uh, interestingly, freely given. And uh, most of the time, and this is, I think, a bit of a tragedy, when this passage has been handled and we've read it or thought about it, we tend to think of kind of a very narrow band of what gifts mean. I mean, the, the kind of standards that you hear are, uh, it's talking about money, right? Your money is given to you to use for the kingdom of God, that's true. Or we think about our, our kind of spiritual gifts. Well, everybody has a spiritual gift. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives you a gift that's designed to be used in the church. Some of you have the, the gift of giving. Some have the gift of prayer. Some have the gift of preaching. It's designed to use for the church. That is true. But that, that's like describing the, the tiniest little tip of the largest iceberg in human history. 
The vast majority of gifts that are given to us are the ones that we we forget about on a daily basis. The fact that you understand that goodness even exists. Like the fact that you even have a category for good. The fact that you have a category for happiness. Can you imagine that? I mean, the Lord didn't have to give you that. He never had to make people so that we had the ability to enjoy anything. He could have made us miserable all of our days. He still would have been just. Still would have been gracious, weirdly enough. I mean, the fact that we can find beauty in a sunrise or a sunset. The fact that we can sit and appreciate the joy of an enjoyable piece of music. Or a terrible piece of music, knowing some of your musical preferences. Or, as we probably have had in the last 48 hours at some point, the pleasure of a really good meal shared with friends or family. Remember, those are the types of gifts that God gives. And to reduce God's gifts to us in money, or to reduce God's gifts to us to the ability to preach or pray, is to ignore the vast majority of what He's given us. The fact that we're alive. The fact that we have any stability in our homes. The fact that most of us understand what it means to be loved in some fashion at all. Can you imagine growing up and never knowing what it would feel like to be loved? You see, this is what's so important to think about our world as we go about it, is that every aspect of our existence is flowing out of this uh, reality that the Lord is generous to His people, He's gracious to His people, He loves His people, He gives upon gives upon gives to us. And it's given out of love. I love this because it's already kind of providing the motivation for us to obey. Why would I want to even obey the Lord at all? Because He loves me. He's loved me before creation even existed. He's loved me before sin entered the world. He's loved me before Christ stepped into the womb. He's loved me before Christ went to the cross. He loves me. Interestingly, though, this generosity motivated out of love has uh, an outworking inside the created order. He's given gifts to his people, and as I mentioned earlier, this is what we begin to see, what these gifts are for. They're designed for a purpose. These gifts are are kind of directional. They're not just given to exist in a point in time to be here like a, a lump on a log or to exist in this one moment in space. They're directional. They're designed to be used for something. They're designed to do something. We find out here that a uh, larger pattern of the parable, these gifts are designed to be invested in the kingdom of God. To be invested in such a way here that we get to see they they produce a harvest of some kind. 
And again, we, we, we have this category, many of us, fixed in our minds to say, well, I know God gives me money so that I can give it to the church. Okay? I mean, don't stop giving to the church, please. I know that God gives me the, the spiritual gifts for the church. Yes, please don't stop using them. We always need nursery workers and Sunday school teachers. But it changes how we think and feel and live and act when we begin to understand that the fact that I even understand what pleasure feels like is designed for the church. The fact that I even know what goodness is is designed for the church. The kingdom of God bigger. The fact that I know what it means to be loved is designed for the church. Now, that last one's low-hanging fruit because we get to see exactly how that works, right? Just a moment ago, the Lord's placed a child in our midst that we have the privilege of helping understand as he grows up. He, he can understand what it means to be loved because there's a room full of strangers that are going to do that from here on out. This, I think, changes how we think about how we live our lives in a, in a, in a radical way when we begin to see that no single part of me exists for my own benefit alone. No, no part of me, my body does not exist for my good alone. My intellect, my humor, or lack thereof, all of these things exist not just for my good, but for somebody else's. My appreciation of beauty, of, of goodness, joy and hope, the love I can receive and give, all of those exist for the benefit of someone else. And friends, I think this is an area where uh, large portions of the church has really whiffed in talking about it. We, we've done a really terrible job. Because what it's done is it's set us up for the failing that we're seeing today with how our culture and how some parts of the church talk about sex. Because we say, uh, my sexuality exists for me. Wrong! My sexuality exists for God and for his people. Which means I have the opportunity to live a holy life. To be obedient to his word, to help strengthen you in your faith and how I live out my life and you do the same to me. Nothing exists for my own good alone. This completely alters how we interact with things that we do not like. Because it's not just for me. The things I don't like about the world in which I live are given as a gift of God's good love. Remember that. And they were given as a gift of God's good love for the benefit of me, but also for the benefit of his church. So whatever circumstance I'm in that I'm unhappy about, it is God's loving design for goodness in me and goodness in the people of God. 
because it doesn't belong to me. This is a part I think that we don't really talk about nearly enough. Your idea of pleasure does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And he can take it away if he wishes. Some of you are like, well, no, he would never do that. Some of us in here really love a good meal, got COVID, and our taste buds haven't come back. And we haven't been able to enjoy a good meal, some of us, for 18 months. It's almost like he took away our pleasure. Maybe perhaps because some of us, I'm just saying, I don't know your heart, but maybe some of us because we're only using that pleasure for ourselves instead of for God's glory or the kingdom of God. I don't know your heart. The Lord knows. How about the stability in your life? Have you thought about how to use that for the kingdom of God? The way that you appreciate beauty and goodness, to use that for the kingdom of God. Because they don't belong to you. Now what does this kind of get at with how God has made us? Is that the Lord has, out of love, designed every piece of our existence to be in relationship with him, to be in communion with him, and to be utilized for his glory. This is why the incarnation, why it's so important, the second person in the Trinity, the Son, steps inside humanity, that he becomes a fully human baby. Was Jesus human? Yes. How human? Fully human, 100% human. 100% God, but also 100% human. Why? Because in his humanity, he, he 100% human and 100% belonging to God and devoted to God in the exact same way that I'm supposed to be in some fashion. You think, wow, man, that's, that's kind of hard to think about it, honestly. That all, every part of who I am belongs to God. I might struggle with that. I, I might not like that. There might be parts of my life that I want to withhold. Maybe there's parts of my life that I don't really want him touching. I mean, you really can't stop him, but okay, try anyways, I guess. You'll just be miserable. We forget how, how this continues, and I, I love what you get to see about the heart of God and how he interacts with these servants. He, he gives them these you know, massive riches, leaves for a while, Again, I don't think it's a one-to-one -one picture that the master is uh, perfectly equated with God. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's with us always. He's not gone forever. But when the master comes back, the, the servants come and say, hey, look what I did. I did a thing for you. I did a thing for you. I made some money here. And I love his response. It's telling Verse 20, you gave me a hundred years worth of wages. I reinvested it over how long it was. I made a hundred years worth of wages. And what does the master say? Good job, 
you did well with a little. I'll give you a lot now. I'm sorry. That was the largest sum of money anybody aside from the master had probably seen in a hundred mile radius in any direction. It was a hundred years worth of wages. And he's like, oh, you did good with a little bit. I'm sorry. That doesn't qualify as a little bit for me. But interestingly, how the Lord handles the, the generosity of which he treats his people, that when it comes time for him to deal with them, it's like, no, no, you don't understand. Money is so small in comparison, and you don't have a category in your brain for how big the Lord gives to his people. hundred years' worth of wages, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the objection we might say is, well, those were the guys that like did it really well. I mean, they made 100% yield or whatever. I love how even when he's interacting with the wicked one, he's like, look, if you just put it in the bank and gotten an interest rate, I would have been fine with that. Like, I'm, I, I love it. The Lord's not even, it's not like he's needling and merciless and, and pitiless of this perfection that is demanded from his children in their love and their obedience in how they interact. He's going to make them perfect. But instead, he's like, just use them for the glory of God. I suspect that many of us are probably harsher in how we interact with each other and how we interact with ourselves than the Lord is when he interacts with us. How how readily we judge others and find them lacking instead of the generous spirit that the Lord has here, which is just do something. Love the Lord. Just do something in obedience. Delight in Him. He rewards with a generous spirit. And the rewards He gives to His people. You know, honestly, some of us wrestle with being obedient to the Lord. And I think, again, a part of that is this kind of, we wouldn't say it out loud but this quiet, lingering doubt in the back of our minds that God isn't actually that good. And friends, I, you see it all throughout the scriptures, but I, I love how it's, it's screaming here. He's so generous. In fact, actually, there's really only one thing you have to be afraid of. Now that we get to see in this kind of well, two things, I guess, that you have to be afraid of. The category of the third wicked servant. He questions the master and says, look, I, I know that you are an aggressive businessman, one that perhaps doesn't um, take kindly to things, which is, again, a bit ironic. So what did I do in being afraid that your money would get stolen? I went and basically I buried I hid it so nobody could take it. Now, for most of us, we've can easily and readily throw judgment at this man, but we forget, again, this is 20 years worth of wages. 20 years worth of wages. And there's not a great banking system the way that we have today. 
right? Most of us, you could be like, well, I'll put it in the bank and I won't lose it. You know, but if I walked up to you and handed you a paper check and said, by the way, hang on to this, I'll need it at some point in the next 60 years, you could understand how you might be a little bit paranoid about that. But what does the man do? Interestingly, motivated out of fear instead of being motivated out of love, he uses the gift. Well, he doesn't use it, actually. He just buries it and hides it. He operates against the design of the master. He does things his own way, and as a result, it goes poorly for him. He receives the judgment of his master. And again, this is the design that's hidden here that's explained to us in God's heart is that he loves his creatures so much, he loves us so much, he will not let us continue in our ways forever. He is a just God and sin will be handled, either atoned for by the blood of Jesus or punished in the life to come. And friends, this is the overarching theme of the passage, is that there is going to be a day coming where you perish. And all of the talents and the gifts and the goodness and the greatness that God has given to you will be called into account. Now, he's so unbelievably kind. He's so unbelievably generous that he's given us many times and many days and many weeks and months and years to use them. But they will be called into account. And really, I, get, I love how you get to see that there's really kind of two ends. The child of God that, out of the love of God, receives the blessing of God based upon God's mercy or those that do not. And I would just very briefly make a couple of application points here. One is I would encourage you, one, to be ready to die. This was the sermon that I was actually preparing when I went into the hospital. Uh, There's, again, no loss of the irony on that one for me. Thinking through the thoughts of, well, am I ready to die? For those that have been kind of with me through the conversations, Nikki and I have had a number of these, but... uh, I could say by the Lord's mercy, I was never afraid to die through the whole process. I, I, that's a real feather in the cap of the Holy Spirit there. Didn't worry for my, my wife. I knew that the Lord would take care of her. Didn't worry for my children. Interestingly, the overarching thought that dominated my mind in the hospital was, you gave me so much, I'm not done investing. I'm not done investing. I want to reap a bigger harvest for God. And again, it wasn't because I was afraid. And again, I just praise the Holy Spirit for this. It was, I love Jesus so much. When it's time for me to meet the Lord face to face, I want to be as excited as these guys and say, here, look, this is what I did for you. Again, no credit to me. It wasn't my money in the first place. The whole thing belongs to him. I'm his slave. It's his resources. Anything he's given me already belongs to God. I want to spend my days with love, investing everything I can so that when I die, I can say, look, this is yours. Look at how glorious you are. Look at how great you are. Look at how marvelous the triune God is. 
Let's rejoice in him. Brothers and sisters, I think many of us struggle with the investing part of it. We we, we struggle with the whole idea of, of spending all of our gifts in God's service. And the reason why we struggle with that is not because we're greedy. It's because we don't understand how much he loves us. If we understood the depth of his love, we would have no qualms saying, look, I just want to spend my days increasing the gift I get to give you in the end. For it's all Christ and it's all his glory. And I can rejoice in that. Brothers and sisters, I I might encourage you just briefly, take a couple of moments today. Confess where you don't think about the Lord's love and confess the areas of your life where you've been clinging to your own desires instead of his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess our sins that we've been living our lives to ourselves too readily. And we ask that you would glorify Christ in us. For his name's sake, amen.